Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, August the 17th, 2022, on this all too global show. It's 4 p.m. in the afternoon in San Francisco, in California. It's the beginning of uh august the 18th in tokyo we'll get back to tokyo we started today in tokyo and tokyo is the theme uh and japan of this show uh, over the weekend i re-watched um akira kurosawa's great movie rashomon wonderful film for those of you who haven't seen it uh it was the first japanese film to receive international uh reception and sort of brought Japan in many ways out of its isolation. And of course, the most memorable thing about uh, Rashomon is the way in which a single incident was perceived differently by four different ways of looking at it. And it uh, is a a movie that introduced, I guess, the notion of perspective of thinking quite differently about the same event, the same crime. Uh, I want to think in Rashomon-like terms about the uh, the the rise and fall of Carlos Ghosn. We've already done a number of shows about him. This French, Lebanese, Brazilian car executive who has somehow come to symbolize all the strengths and weaknesses of our globalized neoliberal order. Uh, We did a show last week with Nick Kostov, the co-author, the Wall Street Journal author, the co-author of uh, a book uh, called Boundless, The Rise, Fall and Escape of Carlos Ghosn. And we we talked with Sean McLean, the other co-author of that film in Tokyo uh, this morning. Boundless, I think, is an appropriate uh, title for the to describe the career of Ghosn. It was an attempt to be boundless, an attempt, I think, in neoliberal terms to create a globalized car industry. And of course, it failed. Uh, We could uh, revise the title of Boundless and call it Collision Course uh, as a summary of Carlos Ghosn's career. And there was indeed, or there is indeed, a book called Collision Course about the sensational downfall of Carlos Ghosn, written by my two guests today, Hans Grimel and William Spazato. They're both joining me from Tokyo. So we're back in Tokyo. Uh, guys, welcome. Um, thinking of Rashomon, your book seems to offer uh, a more long-term uh perspective on the Ghosn story. It, it it takes a step back. It's not as personalized. Uh, which of you want to start with your notion of, of how the Ghosn story can be summarized as collision course? Perhaps, uh, William, you can uh, you can begin this by, by talking about the perspective on your book uh, and how you took, in some senses, a step back uh, to talk about the culture wars that upended not just an auto empire, but perhaps a a period in world economic history. 
Yes, thanks very much. It is it is a big topic, obviously. Um, and there are so many aspects to it. And that's what made writing the book so much fun, actually, because the Carlos Ghosn story on its own is a great story. It's a great saga. But beyond that, obviously, and this is really where Hans is the expert, the uh, impact on the auto empire um, and the auto world between these two major car makers. It's also interesting to remember uh, Japan when uh, Renault came in in 1999, the economy was really in trouble and there was a lot of fear here. Uh, I was based here since 1996. There's a lot of fear over the future. And Renault coming in was a major event for Japan. And so you, you mentioned that it ended in failure. In some ways, it's still the alliance, of course, is still going. And indeed, Nissan, a uh, Japanese uh, major auto company and indeed an icon for Japan, is still uh, here and thriving in some respects. At least it has not gone under the way it probably would have. But then you have, as you say, these, these clashes of judicial systems, of corporate cultures, and of national cultures. And so we thought it was fun to look at all of these aspects um, I tended to look at the judicial side of it and some of the corporate culture issues that sort of came up. Let's um, let's bring Hans in. Um, Hans, uh, this idea of um, Gone's appetite and vision being boundless uh, was never very realistic, was it? Did he capture the hubris in many ways of the first wave of globalization that scale was um, scale was uh, uh, something that could never be limited and you could build these global auto empires uniting Nissan and Renault and Mitsubishi and even Fiat. Well, uh, he was truly a visionary about this global uh, and taking it to the, the auto industry what early proponent of globalization and a massive scale for the auto industry and in that that assessment that is the way that the industry has been going ever since can uh, uh, uh together for bigger scale and lower cost essentially now where was it bringing together two diametrically uh a, a, a companies from two diametrically, basically, Japan and uh, um, France, together in a way that transcends nationality, uh, uh, corporate culture, to form some, and that was not bound to a strict merger, but yet was held together by, and that was where uh, uh, it was really a um caused a lot of stress over the course of his 20 helm he tried to closely knit these companies and inter intermingle them so that they were close and eventually it just became too uncomfortable on both sides and they kind of hit a scene there was no more low-hanging fruit to and get some easy gains of, of of the companies and that's where things have a bunch of friction between the, the, the companies 
William, let me bring you back in. Um, how realistic was Gomes' vision? I mean, how inevitable was the collision cause, leaving aside seemingly his criminal behavior in terms of taking money from the company and squirreling it, squirreling it away in, in the Gulf? Uh, how realistic was his vision of building this global auto empire, uniting French and Japanese and Italian auto companies? Well, in some ways, it was quite realistic. And indeed, don't forget, for many of the years, it worked very well. If Ghosn had left just a year before his arrest or two years before, and he was talking about leaving a number of times, if he had left back then, um, he would be a hero. None of this would have come out the way it did. He would have retired and have been seen as this incredible magician who managed to put these two companies together in at least some respect. Don't forget, it wasn't Gohn who came up with the idea of this alliance. It was Louis Schweitzer, his boss. And Schweitzer said at the time when Nissan and Renault came together, we're not doing a merger. This is not about merging two disparate corporate cultures. It's too much work. We're going to cooperate where it makes sense. And uh, that was, I think, very smart because uh, merging companies is often, even when it's not international, even when you're not talking across time zones, across languages, it's often a failure. However, uh, the Schweitzer idea was that they would have this alliance and work together. And then over time, there were pressures, obviously, to do more, uh, especially from the French side. They wanted to see a closer alliance and some type of merger. And that's where things started to become unstuck in some ways. We had uh, a few years ago, Francis, um, Emmanuel Macron on the show talking about French innovation. How compatible do you think were the French and Japanese cultures of innovation? Well, that's a good point. Um, Japan's Nissan was very strong in um, technology and they had a lot of very good ideas. The problem, as you often see in Japan, was one of execution, an ability to take a very good idea and to turn it into something that's marketable. And that was a problem for Nissan and probably their number one problem at the time. But their technology was very good. What Renault could bring in, what Gone, especially as an individual, could bring in was this ability to uh, take what was good in Japan and to leverage it. He sort of knew what parts of the corporate culture he could ignore and um, sort of tear down and which parts he should preserve. And so it worked actually quite well for many, many years. The part of the problem was that there were few controls on him. And as he got stronger and more successful, and indeed, you know, you could argue started to believe his own PR, um, that's when he became more sort of uh, driven and therefore, you can argue, led to his downfall. Let's bring um, Hans back in. Hans, how inevitable do you think the culture war was that blew up and in the end uh, overgone? A culture war between him and Japan and perhaps in many respects between Japan and France and a war which still seems to be in some ways going on. 
Well, not inevitable, but do you these companies, especially in the automotive sector, a long uh, or successful uh, uh, track record? Uh, there have been lots of um, work, work uh, internationally with form uh, partnerships or alliances really end well. Uh, the 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 record is littered with broken alliances. Uh, uh, the Renault uh, it's uh, remarkable that the uh, um, succeeded so long continues to this day in, in, even absence. Um, you, you take you can take a uh, Daimler with uh, Mitsubishi, uh, that didn't, um, Ford partnered with, uh, uh, Mosley broke up, General Motors worked with Subaru and Suzuki, and they went there, and then most uh, famously, uh, Volkswagen partner uh, with an alliance with Suzuki, and that name acrimony, so the Japanese don't have a good record. Of, of of playing well with uh, automakers, and I could say that, that Nissan is the outlier because he's all partnering with Renault, although the estranged uh, and kind of entering a new phase ties, but yet, yet they're still together out of necessity because of that goal uh, pinpointed, which is is the need for and that's why they are still together better than they would be splitting up and going their own ways sounds like a bad marriage um william uh what in your view has been the long-term impact of this scandal in japan in terms of J japanese perhaps retreat from globalization from its isolation uh, from a, a troublingly insular country, perhaps even a form of, of xenophobia. Do you think that it it's significant? Yes, absolutely. It has been a significant event in Japan. Gon, at his peak, was a hero here. Uh, there was even a manga about him. And so when these allegations came out and then um, the assumption was that quite frankly, in Japan, that he was guilty because um, most people who are charged with the crime here are usually found guilty. And the assumption is that the, that the judicial system operates properly, which is one of the big sort of clashes that we've seen as well, uh, the so-called hostage justice system. So um, the, the Gon case, I think Japan's view of globalization, they're still very global but it's a different type of model. So uh, Japanese companies going outbound, but keeping that Japanese model, even as they go overseas, is been successful in quite a few instances. But the number of real tie-ups in terms of other companies joining hands with Japanese companies, of foreign companies coming into Japan, that remains very problematic. So by some statistics, Japan has the lowest rate of inbound investment from foreign countries of any country in the world. 
and they're trying to change that. There's an entire government agency devoted to bringing in inbound investment, but it's proving an uphill battle. And part of the battle is executives looking at what happened to Carlos Ghosn and thinking, could this happen to me? Should I go to Japan or maybe not? We did a show last year with a, another American journalist, Matt Alt, who lives in Japan, about how Japan's pop culture has conquered the world. Um, where is the innovation for you, uh, William, as an outsider, as a foreign journalist in Japan? Where do you see Japan now contributing to our global culture? Is it in, uh, as Alt says, the way in which Japan's pop culture, its anime culture, is reshaping popular culture around the world? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, there is one of the Japanese ministries, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, is charged with helping to promote uh, Japanese businesses overseas and indeed Japan's economy and Japan's way of doing things. Um, I don't think they ever looked at manga and anime as their best uh, models going forward. They were looking at industry and at technical innovation. So, uh, you know, Japanese food is incredibly popular around the world. I don't think that's something that the Japan bureaucrats thought of initially. Um, so these things always come in surprising areas. When you look at Japan, uh, their biggest innovation in some ways is uh, in the auto industry. When you look at the quality and the consistency that they can make cars has obviously made them world beaters. Now, can they take that technology or can they continue to innovate is still an open question. In, in many ways, Japanese companies uh, remember the days of Sony and Panasonic, right? You had your VCRs and your televisions. Those are falling uh, by the wayside. Korean uh, competitors especially have taken up a lot of what Japan used to do. So the future here is not clear for these companies, and that's that's an area of uncertainty to this day. It must be frustrating, William, um, that Sony and Panasonic missed the internet bus, and now Nissan and Toyota and Honda seem to have missed the electronic vehicle bus, of course, which has been captured above all else by Elon Musk, who in many ways appears to be an even more hubristic version of um of Carlos Ghosn. How much regret is there in Japan about the failure, for example, of Japanese car manufacturers to really um, seize the future in terms of electronic vehicles? Well, as a co-author, I'm very happy to say that's really Hans's area. So let's, uh, he, he's the expert in this. The only issue with Hans is we're having a bit of a, a problem, ah. I think, with sound. So, with the um, audio? Mm. Yeah, okay. his, his, his audio is, is a bit troubled. So perhaps you could answer that. Okay. Maybe closer uh, well, to the... well, Hans, why don't you try and answer it? I, I'm just your your uh, your audio is is splitting in and out, but maybe you can have a shot at that. Okay, I'll I'll try to speak closer to. Um, you know, the Japanese automaker the world uh, with their during their cost control and their bulletproof and. And um, that, that was a recipe. Uh, how's it all right? 
Yeah, it's it's a bit of a struggle. Perhaps we can bring William back in now. Right. William, perhaps you might uh, you you've worked closely with Hans. You might follow his thoughts on this. Sure, absolutely. In in some ways, and Hans wrote about this in the book at, at length. Um, Gone was ahead in a lot of these areas, including electric vehicles. Don't forget the Nissan Leaf was one of the initial electric vehicles, and there was a lot of discussion at the time over hybrid versus electric. And so have the Japanese lost out in that area? I think it's probably too soon to tell. Uh, when you look at the market valuation of Tesla versus the number of cars that they produce their presence in the industry, uh, the story is, is clearly not done yet. And as you say, Mr. Musk has been very, very good at um, publicizing his position and you know, getting on the world stage. But what the Japanese have shown is that uh, slow and steady uh, in the auto industry can pay off quite well. What about the moral lessons of collision course, um, William? Uh, the, the hubris manifested by Ghosn, he famously had a party uh, in Versailles on the theme of Marie Antoinette. He seems particularly skilled at aggravating the gods. I don't quite understand why a man of this kind of intelligence would do something so um, so short-sighted. Yes, he seemed to have a tin ear. And in talking to people who knew Gone over many, many years, that uh, changed over the years. When he first got to Japan, he was um, just another foreign executive here. He led a very uh, sort of normal lifestyle that, that uh, many foreign execs have. Uh, but he seemed to change over the years. And that's not surprising. He, you know, at one point uh, added something like $50 billion to Nissan's value in the stock market. So, you know, that, that can go to your head. That can be uh, quite uh, quite heady for, for anybody. And the, the Versailles parties are interesting because we talk about collisions, of course. Uh, what the French judicial system, the American judicial system, and the Japanese judicial system have all seen in the Gone case is different and from a different perspective. So in talking to people from France and uh, you know across the board, auto executives or legal experts, the Versailles parties, and there were two of them actually, were sort of a lightning rod for this. But they don't even figure in the charges against Gone here in Japan. They were not an element at all. Uh, so it's, it's different cultures, different ways to look at it. But yeah, doing a party like this, and you, we just saw the pictures, doing a party like this is obviously not a great idea from a public relations. To, to, to put it mildly, and as he said, it, it's certainly a way of tempting fate and, and, and encouraging the revenge of the gods. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a show with Alan Murray, a very distinguished American financial journalist, the editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine recently on tomorrow's capitalism. Murray wrote about Ghosn saying that his legacy will be defined by uh, his hubris. Do you think that a man like Ghosn represents the kind of climax, the high point, if that's the right word, for Davos Man? We, we did a show with another financial journalist, Peter Goodman, last year on Davos Man about how the billionaires devoured the world. 
I'm not sure if Ghosn was ever a billionaire. He certainly mm. wanted to be one. But does he represent a kind of high point, William uh, Ghosn, in, in hubris of capitalists? And since then, I mean, we don't see it with, with uh, certainly with Elon Musk, but perhaps there's a little bit more care of these executives in terms of how they behave. Yes, that's that's a good question. I'm not sure Gone represents that so much as the Gone incident in terms of timing, in terms of sort of the, the whole event unfolding. As you say, Gone was never, by global standards, one of these incredibly rich billionaires. And in fact, you know, the salaries that he was seeking were still below what peers in the auto industry were making. And so in some respects, it's clear that he was driven by this desire to be rewarded what he thought uh, a reward that wasn't outrageous, a reward that was uh, in line with, with the benefits that he was bringing to this very big company. And that's one of the issues, you know, more broadly about capitalism. Uh, why is it that financial people make so much money, uh, you know, and they are the true billionaires, whereas the people like Ghosn who make things and produce things are compensated at a much lower level. And in fact, uh, probably one of Ghosn's mistakes was to stay in the auto industry. If he had gone into private equity, he probably would have gotten compensated at the levels he would have come to expect. And there again, this might never have happened. Our title for the, uh, the conversation with Kostov was uh, asking whether it's a modern whether the Gohan story is a modern-day Greek tragedy or the parable of a shameless criminal mastermind. What do you think, William? Um, shameless criminal mastermind? I think you've still got to see more of the facts come out. Um, don't forget, there has been no trial of Gohan directly. We have not seen his defense. Well, that's no defense of him. He, he stowed away in a, in a, in a box. Well, he did flee the uh, the just, Japanese justice system. Well, as if you know, he hasn't been given the chance of a trial, although he would, of course, argue that the Japanese uh, system is uh, will never give him a fair trial. So maybe maybe we can get Carlos going himself on the show at some point. Let's end with um, let's end with uh, with hands. Hands, we're having some audio problems, but shameless. Uh, shameless uh, uh, crook, essentially, or Greek. Uh, uh, a victim of a, of a Greek tragedy, William, for Carlos Ghosn. I'll take this. Um, boy, boy, it's hard to say. William pointed out he hasn't stood trial. The all table. The prosecutors haven't uh, yet. Um, so it's um, just where the legal chips fall. To a victim of uh of a kind of over stretch could make a big uh argument for that did he's privilege and situation at lack of oversight i think you could make it easy the the uh the evidence did that rise to the to the a moral failure that's a different bar i think be um, sorted out.